Just a quick message before the show begins. We're a year in now and I've really enjoyed doing this and I hope you've been enjoying it too. If you have, then please like and share the content and get in touch with any thoughts and feedback and hopefully we can keep growing the show and getting more incredible guests. Thanks and back to the show. I'm Adam Gow, the DJ formerly and sometimes currently known as Waxon. Welcome to the Once a DJ podcast. DJing and DJ culture have been a huge part of my life for better or worse. They've given me a massive buzz at times and loads of stress at others and taught me a load of valuable lessons along the way. On this podcast I speak to DJs from around the world who've made the names when it was just about skills and selection, not social media followers. We'll discuss their journey through Ascendancy and what part it plays in their life now. Whether they're still on the scene, said goodbye to the decks forever, or still get a sneaky mix in when life gives them the chance. Whatever road they've travelled, they were always once a DJ. Welcome back to Once a DJ, and this week I'm here with Phil Lemke, aka Sticky Dozier. Germany born and raised, and now based in New York with a range of gigs across bars, clubs, galleries and corporates, he's also a remixer, curator and journalist, and a graduate of the inaugural Red Bull Music Academy. Today we're going to discuss his early years and the experiences that shaped him into the DJ that we see today. Phil, thanks for coming on the show. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. You're more than welcome. Um, so yeah, I'm really excited to get into your story and, and understand it because it's it's going to be quite different to a lot of the other guests that we've got in terms of your geographical journey and, and probably your cultural exposure growing up. So so do you want to start from, um, I mean, start from where's best for you, really? Yeah, I mean, um, I obviously listen to a lot of the podcasts you've done. I've loved the series and I'm happy to, to be a part of it and... Um, I guess I'm the first one that's kind of from the German area. Um, but a lot of my upbringing and uh, socialization with music and DJ culture um, maybe mirrors a lot of the things that other people already talked about. But then because where, where I'm from, there's a, you know, there's lots of different things happen as well. So I, I try to keep it as exciting as possible. Um, yeah, I think the first, let, let's start like in the early 80s. I was born in East Germany, but then um, um, we moved to West Germany before the war came down. It's a long story. That's for another podcast. Uh, won't, won't go into that. But like it was like I was basically living in West Germany with my parents in um, asylum houses for refugees because I was basically we were a refugee family from East Germany to West Germany. We only spoke the same language, but I came from a completely po uh, different political system um, and then um, we had the chance to visit West Berlin for the first time which was November 83 so because we never made it to the West and West Berlin was even though it was still located in East Germany like West Berlin was you know part of of the Western world and I will never forget like walking with my parents through Kudam which was one of the most famous streets and seeing these boys just moving like robots and seeing this boombox and I was like what is this and that was my my first when when I I always say like I caught the first wave of hip-hop that's you know when all of this came to Europe it was Turkish b-boys and then they went around with a hat and collected money and I'm like what is this so I, that's where I 
kind of was already intrigued. Okay, what is this sound? And then living with my parents um, in in these asylums, we had a a black and white television. And then you know the the early music uh, shows in Germany started. There was one. It was called Formula One. And you would I would see like Phil Collins against all odds, like doing it live, and or like the I remember the Thriller Michael Jackson video premiere, and I was like too young to watch it, and my parents were like, oh, you might want to look away. Um, and then that year, um, I went to a record store in Aachen when we finally moved to Aachen uh, in in West Germany, where I basically grew up and have spent a considerable amount of time of my life. Uh, I remember like it was probably 84 by then when we went to a record store for the first time with my parents and there were two albums on the wall one had these white gloves it was like breakdance comp- music compilations and uh, the other one was um, West Street Mob uh, on Sugar Hill Records and that was kind of my first record and I was just okay and now I put two and two together and I got really into breakdancing as a you know tiny young kid and that was my, my first love so was in in East Germany then was was it very much kind of Russian sort of cultural influence? There was um, yes, there was, but obviously we lived close enough to the border that we had um, access to Western television because it was all terrestrial back then. Right. Uh, there was a part in East Germany, like the the southeastern part that. Um, didn't have access to Western uh, media. Uh, we had, and there was also a state-owned label called Amiga, and they would mm. lic- they would license uh, Western music. So when I grew up, you know, um, Pink Floyd was played a lot in the in the house, like the Wall. Uh, actually, one of my first childhood memories is putting the needle onto a record of, and it was ACDC's Highway to Hell. I'll never forget, like the first like chords, the guitar chords. So that all happened, um, yeah, in before we left, like in around '82, uh, early '83, and yeah, my parents always had records. So um, you know, it was, it was Dire Straits, it was um, Earth, Wind, and Fire, Best of. I vividly remember, like, "Got to Get You Into My Life." That was always played in the house, and my mom would dance. So there was a lot of soul music, a lot of classic rock. And I remember then, you know, when we went to West Germany, when we were living in West Germany, one of the first things is my parents took me to a, sh- uh, a concert in Cologne. And it was uh, Supertramp, John Baez, and I forgot, I think Santana, oh, something wow. like this. So there was there was always, my parents were always very much into music. And then, um, I, I, but I tried to hold on to these hip hop things, you know, we're talking about like the, this first wave. And... Um, I remember then in 85, uh, 1985, but now like I'm, I'm still, I'm looking for people like outside of my house that are also into dancing. I wanted to dance. And um, all the kids were like, well, this happened last year. Like it, this is so, <laughs> so 1984 and then we're, we're playing football now. And so, uh, but I kept it. I kept this urge to be like, I want to know more about this music and um, the dancing. And, and I was kind of on my own, like dancing in my room. And yeah, and like had a rock steady crew poster on the wall and all of that. And then obviously, you know, being a kid, I was listening to all kinds of stuff. And then also like kids music. And it wasn't all like, you know, only hip hop. But I, I tried to catch these glimpses of stuff. And I remember I got really into Miami Vice 
mm. and they had they had um uh i think Melly mal had a uh, a song on the on the soundtrack it was a miami vice rap so i'm like i put i'm like okay this is connected to my now my favorite tv show that I, and um and then i think by 87 my parents had a sampler and there was beastie boys on it she's on it yeah remember that song um and i went i remember we went to a local restaurant and um the the son of the owner came to me and he's like have you heard of the beastie boys they have women in cages on stage that throw beer cans <laughs> and i was like what <laughs> uh very intrigued and then a, another big thing obviously was the advent of cable television in germany yeah okay so, can i just ask sorry Moving from east to west, yeah. How difficult or easy was it to make friends and interact with the with the Western kids? Was it? Were there any sort of difficulties there? Well, I can I can quickly tell the story of like um, I I basically uh, went to a socialist kindergarten in East Germany where everything was uh, was. Uh, like uh, everything was in, uh, giving order, uh, was given an order for. So uh, now you sleep, now you brush your teeth, and it was like it was really strict. It was all kind of military. Mm. And I remember then we lived in Heidelberg, um, which has uh, a big there was big GI bases, army bases from from the states, and a lot of the kids were actually American army kids. And I remember the first days I was in kindergarten, I was just sitting around and doing nothing. And then the kindergarten teacher just went to my parents and was like, "Something is wrong with your son. Like he doesn't interact, he doesn't play." And my parents were like, "No, you, he's waiting for orders." That's how brainwashed I was from mm. the the socialist kindergarten. Then once they were like, "You're free to go. You're free to touch everything. Like you're you can do whatever you want here." Basically, then I was good. But it was definitely a a, a change in the in the political system for sure. That must be a big thing for for a kid to readjust to a whole different set of societal rules. Yes, and it also. Like this whole thing of like leaving a country, kind of um, moving, uh, like became a thing for my family. Like we were always moving, even within Aachen, we moved, I don't know, like 15 times or something crazy. Like I never really had a home for, for forever. It was always just a couple of years here, three years here, five years there, maybe, you know? So. Did, did music become something that you kind of depended on as a constant then given that amount of variety and change that were that is instability a fair word to say yeah i mean my my parents always were looking out for me and i i i wouldn't say that my childhood was uh, unstable or anything mm. like that it was there was a lot of love in the house especially because of what we went through but music was always there um and just I was just intrigued by music just constantly and and uh, especially this like hip hop and soul music because that's what I've resonated most with um mm. I remember like you know talking about cable television like this there was this show about um there was a TV show about Vietnam about like some series um I think it was called Nam or something mm. and I will never forget like hearing they played Marvin Gaye's what's going on in the in the, in one of the shows and I will I will never forget like rushing to the stereo boombox that was in the kitchen and trying to tape that song off <sighs> the television and um yeah just just memories like that you know just 
that would, mm. w- would be something that I would just hold on to forever and just like, wow, what is this? And I wanted to know more about that. And then it, by the late 80s, um, you know, it was also like the radio became really important, just like c- classic sitting under the the bed sheet with the with the radio on and switching to AM and hearing the BBC for the first time and then they had or they had a German radio station Radio One kind of similar to the BBC and there was a radio show called Graffiti and then this must have been like eight eighty nine um, I will never forget like all of a sudden I hear these beats and um, it was Tough Crew uh, from Philly so in in that radio show they would play like the newest US rap that came out, like underground rap, but also like death metal. I remember then the next right. song was like Death by Dawn, by Deicide or something crazy. <laughs> and, um, and but I, I remember I only had like, tw- like the last 15 seconds of that Tough Crew song and it took me years to actually find out what it was and find the record in a record store. <laughs> Did you find the almost like the, the the game sort of nature of, oh, what's this thing I need to try and find out about it? Did, did you find that almost, that kind of challenge a lot of fun? Because I think it can be quite satisfying, can't it? When when you find the, the satisfaction you get when you realise something like that. It, I was actually, I think, now thinking back, or maybe I just make that up now in my mind, I was more frustrated that I didn't have more access because right. I was still I was still young I was like 12 years old and I remember like going to a skate shop and then the the uh, the clerk he had tapes and he was like okay listen to this and it was like EPMD you got to chill and I, he, I heard a talk box for the first time in my life that that zap sample mm. it just blew me away but I was too young and then these older kids were like hey you know Public Enemies performing in Cologne next next month. Or you you want to come with us? And I'm like, oh, I'm kind of still too young. But then by the by the next year, I think in '91, um, with a friend from school, I convinced my parents. Okay, I want to go um, to a rap show, and um, it was actually Gangstar and Dream Warriors and some other uh, um, acts from Canada. And that was obviously huge for me. Like I remember, like mm. g- getting a step in the arena for my thirteenth birthday from a friend of mine. Um, and that kind of cemented it. Um, at the same time, I think early '91 was when I got into Massive Attack, and just understanding that there was also like this the the UK as a you know something that also makes hip hop. Or on the trip to Paris with my mom. Uh, I went to the HMV store and bought the first NTM Nick Tamer album, uh, Authentique, um, which is now obviously like a French classic. I mean, mm. they had the, it's one of the biggest crews, and just that I kind of became aware. Okay, in every country, this is happening. Rap music is happening, and they're rapping in their own language. And there was still a time when there was a little bit of German rap already happening. Uh, also at a pop level, at a major label lab level, but the quality was just not there. And there was still a lot of people rapping in English in, in Germany. Have you seen that um, MTM program on Netflix, the like, yes. biopic? Oh, it's really good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's the, I mean, the, the whole thing, there's the cinematography and, and how they, like, it, I mean, French rap was always ahead of the, the German uh, rap scene, I'd say, by three to five years at least. Um, mm. 
and but yeah and then like early 90s is when this whole thing like really blew up for me um just going to the record stores by myself and and then same time you know doing kids parties in someone's parents basement and like mosh pitting to like police so lonely because we heard it from the older brothers and sisters and like still rock was still there like remember like finding out about Jimi Hendrix, Voodoo Child, and um, a friend of mine who's like bringing Led Zeppelin and that kind of stuff also was still around. Um, Were the people that you were around, did they all tend to be quite sort of wide-ranging with their with, with their music taste? Because I know when I was growing up, people, people around where I am tended to be quite siloed and I'm into this or I'm into this. You didn't get as many people that would kind of cross genres um was it quite an open-minded society yes because because of the fact that we grew up like in a like small town there wasn't much there was scenes like the older uh, brothers they were then they got into like front 242 the whole ebm thing um but for us like we would literally just sit down like i remember like in 93 just go to a friend's house and listen to dj crystal like drum and bass uh, then became big for us too and we were just blown away by the production and the, the break beats and and everything and then well at the same time we would listen to roger waters music of for the body and laugh at the fart noises on the record and like just being kids you know like it wasn't that serious we uh, we kind of develop this understanding okay this is something that we want and but this this whole thing of like being in a scene and 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 just being like this is hip-hop this is not hip-hop or this is this this is that that came much later in the beginning it was like everything which i came back in my djing um later on back to that kind of mindset of having just an open mind and anything goes I suppose if you're if you're somewhere that's away from a bigger city, it, it's harder to engage in the tribalism of music in a way because it's harder to dress a certain way in the kind of uniform of that type of music, for example. Well, it, it speaking of that, that was something that was people probably don't understand it anymore. For example, the whole fashion thing that comes with music. We didn't have access to that. And if you talk to people in Germany, yeah, you, you know, the older writers, I, uh, by that time I was also getting into graffiti and street culture, just running around in the town, you know, you meet other kids and older kids. And um, I remember, like, I desperately wanted a pair of Puma Puma uh, baskets or Puma mm. suede, it's like the shoes. You couldn't just access them or buy them. And I remember an older writer friend, he uh, would go to London and he brought back some pumas for me and i was just the, the king in school you know mm. and then all, all the other school kids were like why are you wearing your grandfather's old football shoes like what's going on <laughs> they did, they, no one had seen fat laces at that point for example in my yeah. school you know we were kind of the first people to and then we're like why do you have these big big laces what's the what's the code here <laughs> like no one understood um yeah but it was it was hard in the beginning to to get stuff and obviously then during the 90s um with the german hip-hop scene just growing and growing magazines started and then eventually it got into mail orders like around 96 97 but even before that we were always just trying to get stuff and um um 
I, I believe, like for example, the 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 first official Superstars reissues um, were only available like in late '92, early '93, all over Germany. So before that, you really had to know where to get stuff. The Superstars reissues, they rap. Oh, the, the 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 Adidas. No, I mean the shoe. Oh, sorry. So Got so you. so um, it was, you know, there was a time when. Yeah, some people in Berlin, they had specialist shops and they had people uh, like f flying to New York or Paris and then buying stuff in bulk and bringing it back. But we didn't have access to that, you know. Because um, Aachen, Aachen is, is a, um, it's really the heart of Europe, which was also good for traveling. Um, mm. it's, it's right at the border to Netherlands and Belgium. So I literally grew up walking distance from the Dutch and Belgian border. I could oh, just wow. walk across the border and, and I was in another culture. Um, so that that was really a, a, a huge bonus of living there um, and that's why we were also really more drawn to the Netherlands Belgium and even uh, England because London geographically is almost it's closer than Berlin to us growing oh, up right. most Western Germany yeah so going to London at the time was I mean maybe four or five hours with the with the ferry and bus and everything. Mm. Um, now it's there's a direct train. And it's like via Brussels is like I don't know two and a half three hours, mm. and going to Berlin is like seven and a half eight. So um, yeah, it's, we we were always drawn to that. And then um, we also because of the British forces that were stationed around Aachen and Mönchengladbach in that area, we had access to um, British radio. There, there was actually a show in the early 90s by a guy called Steve Mason, the Steve Mason Experience. I don't know if he was actually famous in the UK as a DJ. I, I've not heard of him. Yeah, he was with the British forces and he was traveling around the world and wherever he was you know, stationed, he would do a radio show. And he was stationed in Germany at the time and he would play uh, early hardcore and breakbeats and early oh, wow. jungle. So we had access to that. And then uh, the other really important person that was on that radio station was david rodigan he had mm. his his reggae show so yeah by that time like 93 that was we were just always religiously listening to that and just getting all this input and and then the other uh, important radio show came actually from amsterdam it was called dutch masters um, a hip hop show that I uh, discovered in '93. I think the first, like, just being on the radio, dialing in, and then I think the first song was like "Only When I'm Drunk" by the Alcoholics. Mm. And I'm like, wow! And that was the the direct gateway to New York for us. And it was, it was once again, it was terrestrial radio. So. Uh, if you were in Cologne, if you were like uh, 70 kilometers east, you couldn't get that station. But because we were so close to the border, right. it, opened, it opened us up for, for what was to come because uh, they had all the imports, um, all the new records, like a week after they came out in New York. That's crazy. Hey guys, I hope you're enjoying Once a DJ. I wanted to create a product for the listeners to be able to support the show and for the guests as a token of gratitude for being on. So I've teamed up with SureShot Shop to create some Wunter DJ 45 RPM adapter clamps. These are my weapon of choice as a 45 adapter as they add stability and grip to aid you in any setup. These are available for £25 each plus flat fee postage from wunterdj.bigcartel.com and if you'd like to see the other models you can buy and also customise, 
check out showshotshop.com. If you're a DJ who's been wanting to get into production but don't know where to start, or if you're looking to level up your beat making skills, look no further than howtomakemusic.co's online courses and personal coaching. Chris, the founder of How To Make Music, as well as knowing a load about music production, was once a DJ, and so his courses are ideal for the likes of us. From the Music Theory Essentials course to the incredibly thorough Ableton Turbo Start, there's a ton of good information to get you developing your music production skills. In addition to the video tutorials, there's a load of reference guides, and they even offer personal coaching to get you where you want to be even quicker. And if you buy any course at howtomakemusic.co using the code ONCEADJ at checkout, you'll receive 10% off. So what you're waiting for, visit howtomakemusic.co. Um, so, when UK hip-hop was big in the early 2000s, when that wave of it was going on, I should say, um, a lot of my friends were quite into it, but I, I just never quite got into it. I mean, I, I'm, for me, I, I'm more beats than lyrics, and I just didn't quite click with it in the same way as some of my friends did. But I think also at that time, I was getting more interested in samples and sample culture and looking backwards. But yeah, it was, it was quite strange that it was such a prominent scene in my country, but I, I didn't really grab onto it. What was your experience like with the German hip hop? given that you were there and you had such a variety of um, influences? Um, I, I was pretty much there from when the fir very first records came out and it was actually a scene when people identified as hip-hop and it wasn't just novelty rap in German. Um, it was I, I was there to see the switch from English language, from bad English records to actually, okay, we need to rap in our own language because other people in other countries are doing it. Mm. And then by 92, 93, you had records. There was one group called Advanced Chemistry um, and they were like, you know, it was like an Italian immigrant son. It was like a half Haitian, half German guy who became later on like a very prominent figure. His name is Torch in in, in, in German hip hop. So yeah, all of that, that mixed in with like the drum and bass influence from from England and then seeing the, the local German hip hop scene growing, I always felt that, okay, the, the, the spirit is there, the people are there, but there were very few records that were really like on a level with uh, American productions and even like UK productions because you have to understand also at the time there was this sound called Britcore in the yeah. early 90s mid 90s that was huge in certain parts in Germany and like really spoke to to the German crowd too like especially in Hamburg um, and there were lots of people mimicking it in German like really like this fast rap style and just having gib gibberish English like <laughs> you couldn't, couldn't understand a word uh, but we liked the energy and obviously the break beats and everything. Yeah. And that was also the time, maybe like around 95 when, um, I really got into, okay, I want to, I want to DJ. I want to do something with the, with these records that I already had. And, um, I remember like, um, my friend Frido, uh, also known as DJ Demic, he's still active. He also does podcasts and radio now in Germany. He already had two turntables and 
he called me one day and was like, I got it. I, I'm able to mix now. I, I can mix records on in beat. And I'm like, what? I was still wasn't able to do that. So I had this competition. Okay, I need to get into that. And I went to his house and it was 1995 and he had Ray Keith, the terrorist, and he mm. mixed it with rock set, listen to your heart. Which is crazy, but it's like it was a mashup <laughs> essentially. But it yeah. worked for like a you know for a couple of bars, and we're like, oh, this is crazy. And then I borrowed equipment. Um, I had a tape deck and a belt-driven turntable that had a little pitch. And I went home and I tried and tried and tried. And then uh, I remember it was with drum and bass records actually. I don't know which ones it was exactly, but yeah. And then it clicked, and I was able to mix, and that was a huge thing. So that was around 95 and then yeah going further in the timeline like nine by 96 um i had first had my name on a flyer and did my first party in in Aachen. and it was the it was the summer of the fujis you know the score mm. was really big and i got a first glimpse of this thing as a dj where um the requesting because I was still playing like digital underground and playing like a little bit older records that I had, yeah. you know, all these LPs. And I remember the girls at the party, they were already requesting like Lauren Hill and the Fujis. And I'm like, all right, I, I see that because it's, it's new and I understand. And, um, and by that time, I mean, I came up with drum and bass, as I said, but there were simply too many drum and bass DJs in Aachen for this tiny town. So mm. I, I went into hip hop and by 95 with my friend Frido and another friend Jochen. Um, we started practicing and we had one guy in our school. He already was part of a DJ pool. And um, he invited us one day and he was more into house and electronic music, but he had artifacts wrong side of the tracks he had mob deep shook ones all these 12 inches and he's like i don't really need this they just you just want to buy them for me for like five deutschmarks oh nice and we, and we were like yes and that, <laughs> that that made me also understand okay there's actually like this dj service thing dj pools where you can get records sent to you it's amazing and with those records we just practiced and practiced and um, yeah, and then I finally by '96 I I started doing my my own like little parties and was booked here and there in the town because I mean it's a it's a fairly small town it's like 300,000 people so mm. there weren't that many opportunities or, or you know or locations even where you could DJ but by that time it was also like exploding um there was a party called massive tunes which was a pure drum and bass party but they had a second room where i would dj and just play i don't know like early daft punk and then but also like you know instrumental hip-hop and and a little bit of rap and just trying to make sense of it not really knowing what i'm doing did you find that um kind of moving around um develops your social skills in a way that you were good like with dealing with promoters and things like that did it give you like that sort of confidence um not really i mean i was more it was a very small scene um and i i got to know all the people and was trying to find my way um and 
I mean, in the beginning, I remember like my, from my first party, the guy who was like in the movie, like he was like wearing sunglasses. He's like, I invite you to dinner and you're going <laughs> to you're gonna have this great party and you're going to have this crazy career. I was like 18 years old and he's telling me all these things. And I'm like, okay. But I fairly early on um, realized that, it, you know, it's it's that whole promotion game. I, I, I never was really too good at it. Um, and it's... I don't know, like if if that if my social skills develop through that or anything. But I I was always trying to just make a good good set and have you know people come back. And um, sometimes that was difficult, you know, because uh, you 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 have this idea of what you want to present to people, and then they're somewhere else with mm. with what they expect. Um, but at the same time, I think a lot of the people were. In, in our town we're just thankful that something was going on yeah so were you very much pure hip-hop when you were DJing at that point or were you throwing in bits of bits of other stuff as well uh totally bits of other stuff as well um the whole hip-hop thing came a bit later I think by 97 uh it started to manifest more I've got out a little bit of the like buying drum and bass records because simply it was it was the sound was changing a little bit it got darker uh, more more technical yeah and um i also had more and more access through the radio shows and also through a trip to new york in the summer of 1997 i just finished school and that trip just blew everything wide open um it's crazy because I, I went to the Rocksteady anniversary. Um, I saw Stretch Armstrong playing at the HMV store. I met the Beat Nuts. I was just hanging out at Fat Beats oh, for wow. a day. Just just up like like a sponge. Just, okay, who's coming in here? Oh, there's Crazy Legs over there. And um, just, and then I remember like through mail order, we got access to the first uh, Invisible Scratch Pickles v VHS tapes. Mm. Um, we went on trips to Amsterdam because Amsterdam was three hours away. And we went to the Paradiso and Melkweg, big clubs that still exist in Amsterdam. DJ Babu was DJing. All of a sudden, Fat Beats opened up in in amsterdam so we would yeah. go there and buy 12 inches and i mean that that was the summer when the first um when when the when the independent hip-hop scene really um like you know all these uh, things came out like dilated peoples and most deaf and um raucous became big so by that time it was pretty obvious okay this is this is just what i want to do and what i um what i'm what i'm looking for so that trip to New York was the intention just to soak up as much hip hop as possible. Well, it was kind of like a you know I've been to New York and then my father he he had a uh, he was doing work in the U.S. and he was like why don't you come with me and we'll spend some time in New York in between and I'll make it work and um, for me yeah that was like just soaking it all up just running around and listening to the radio I mean I, re I remember like taping we were living in Jersey and always taking the train into New York and I was taping the Stretch and Barbito show yeah and just just I was, I was just blown away by everything and I mean is, is that I, the era when they were doing when they had all the incredible freestyles on uh yeah and, and and just like the 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 shit talking also like i remember taping one where uh, lp was there and they were talking about um this uh what was this 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 movie with kevin costner Waterworld. <laughs> and, and they were like, "Oh, can you imagine if it, if it was if it would be like Pork World and everything would may, be made out of pork and you know th that humor?" But then also like just 
being in in record stores in in New York was just phenomenal. And I remember this this like I spent all my money on Fat Beats and went down to West Fourth Street and there was another small record shop. I forgot what it was, but I walked in and I clearly had no money and I had no idea what I'm doing. But I was like, okay, I gotta I gotta ask a good question. I'm like, hey, do you have um, Incredible bonga band Apache, <laughs> and and the guy was like, yeah, we got it. And, and but I wanted it on twelve inch. I wanted the twelve inch bootleg that everybody was talking about, and they didn't have that. But then the girl rolled by on roller skates and was asking for Marvin Gaye sexual healing, and he just gave her the forty five, and she just rolled off to the streets. It was like a movie, <laughs> and I'm like, what is this here? I need to. And and I mean that trip, that energy really helped me for years. Like coming back to to Germany, you know, and being like, "Wow, this is this is it." Had had you got a plan after school? Then when you had you got an intention of I'm going to go to New York and come back and do a certain thing, and and if so, did that change through the experience of that trip? No, it was more. Um, so 97 I finished school and then it was like okay I have to go to university what is what's my best strategy and um there was a really good university just uh right across the border in a town called Maastricht and that's where I enrolled for um that's Netherlands isn't it international business studies that's Netherlands yep yeah. uh one of the oldest towns in the Netherlands and it was literally just a half an hour car ride away but you're in a completely different world it's a different language different different country um so i enrolled in 98 um to do intern to to study there but it was very much separated i had my dj life in in germany uh, which eventually spilled over to Maastricht because I made contacts there and I like with, with DJing student parties and stuff later on. But um, I kept it fairly... I mean, not really. I, I have to go back and say that we did a lot of trips to the Netherlands and we were also part of a thing called the Hip Hop Cafe in a small town called Sittard where me and my friend from Germany would go and we would be the only Germans, which also then led to me... Um, doing my first DJ battle in 1998 um, in the Netherlands. Um, it was called Battle of the Highlands. It was a D local DMC battle. It was just me and two other guys. And um, uh, yeah, I won that actually. I was practicing a lot at the time, like from 97 to 98. But the others were also really bad. And then... Um, um, and I remember uh, one of the judges was DJ Kipski, um, I don't know if you heard of him. He's still still one of the best uh, turntablists from the Netherlands. Like he does tone scratching and all of that. Um, please look him up if you haven't. Um, and he he asked me afterwards, and he's like, "Did you know that you would win this?" And I'm like, "Yeah, I I did because I knew who was going on against." Um, <laughs> that same year, I uh, enrolled for a battle in Amsterdam called Turntableized, which was in in the Paradiso Club. It was in a big club, and I was just scared shitless, and yeah. uh, I did not place. I was just like, and all the Dutch Dutch guys were making fun of me. I was like the the only German, like battling in the Netherlands. It was fun, but it was it was like clearly getting out of my comfort zone and um, also a testament to the fact that we were always more drawn to the Netherlands or like that border lifestyle than going east into Germany. 
how much of the performance was that your skill level wasn't as good as theirs and how much of it was did the nerves just get to you because I know what it's like when you do a battle and you, you're shaking, trying to put your needle on and, you know, you're queuing up and it doesn't quite go over the, the you, you tape marker in the right way and stuff like that if it's going wrong. Well, it, it was, um, I remember, um, so going back to that New York trip on that Rocksteady uh, anniversary, I met Christy Pabon. Uh, mm. who was who was doing DMC US at the time and I actually gave her a demo of like little beats that I made and um, uh, which uh, a year later resulted in um, um, me and another friend we produced a remix for Jru the damager that came out in the UK actually on DMC UK in 98 um, but she was at the time she had these um, I forgot the name of the DJ he was also like he was a uh, he was kind of like a rock guy. He was, I think, he was the the uh, USDMC champion in '96. Um, Swamp. He, Swamp, yeah. And Swamp had the skip-proof scratch tools. Yeah. And and she would send them to me. Like I would buy them from her and would practice with those. And I'm, I was thinking at the turntable, I said, okay, at least the needle won't skip because I have to, these skipless. And I remember actually the other guys making fun of me that I was using that because uh, they weren't and it was I mean it was pretty you know the lot of ego and like insecurity you know how these battles were back then it was like it was, it was, <laughs> it was uh, gruesome well I mean it's like when I talked to Dee and she was on about guys um, sabotaging her needles and stuff I, mm -hmm. I was mind blown but yeah like you say I mean in that world there was a lot of braggadocio and bravado and, and stuff like that wasn't there so I guess it comes with that sort of territory yeah and then I think a year later I enrolled again and then by then I was more comfortable and there's actually also video footage of that and um, I remember I was I got applause after my set and um, I was I felt really great I did well and I think I had I was at the same level of points as another Dutch guy, but because I was German, I think they picked the Dutch guy to go to mm. the next round, which I was fine with. It was just more for the experience, but that was like my short-lived battle career. But it made me, um, you know, practice and you know, uh, get more into that. And that year, 98, when I did my first battles, uh, was also the year I went to the very first Rebel Music Academy in Berlin. What was that like? that was just incredible it was so you had to so they they send out um application forms to all the record stores in germany it was it was national only for the first one it was kind of like a test balloon to do it internationally and um i remember you had to apply you had to like fill out all these questions and um um i got a yes and it was like okay you're going to berlin for two weeks and there's going to be this house filled with turntables and uh just like a it was just like a you know a playground for djs and pretty much the first thing that happened was we're sitting in a room and um the first interview that they did was jeff mills and then right. it was there was juan atkins and then it was uh the executioners swinging by and then it was some reggae sound system then someone would came and talk about how labels work and it was just and then you would go into the house and just find a room with turntables and just practice and and jam together with other people and that for, t for two weeks and then i actually i think it, i even came back for another two weeks they had a second set where i just um made it work somehow um 
with my civil services at the time that I was doing kind of got out of that and then just um, yeah that was a huge game changer for me too obviously meeting all these people um, that's also when I started to write for music magazines because one of the founders of Repo Music Academy was a um, chief editor of one of the biggest music magazines at the time and he asked me to uh, start writing about music and doing interviews what was that based on then? Was it based on your music knowledge or your DJing skill or was it something in terms of the quality of application that you'd done? I think it was a mixture of that. Um, I asked them about my application and then one of the guys told me that, yeah, you were pretty much one of the first that went through. You're like Because I had always had this bird's eye view. It wasn't just hip hop. It wasn't just... Because, um, I mean, it's Germany. Like, I went to my first rave in 1993. You know, there's, there's, um, this was always around. So I had a under- fairly global understanding of music and reggae and, and all kinds of things. Not that I was an expert in everything, but I saw how different things interacted. And um, Yeah, because I, I, I asked that just because, I mean, I applied for the Red Bull Music Academy one year and I just remember it was an absolute beast of an application form when I did it. Yeah, it was pretty. It took me a couple of nights, and then like really like do the like this half hour mix. I remember I worked f- on it for weeks, and just like I wanted to do it right, and uh, it worked out. But then obviously it became, you know, I think when you applied, it was already on such a level that it was just. I mean, look look at it, who came out of this and who was part of it, like who was an alum. What's the word? Alumni, alumni. Yeah, um, it's just incredible talent that was featured over the years, you know? Who, who is there? I, I mean, I can't think off the top of my head. Oh, I think like like um, Flying Lotus was there. I think DJ Day from Palm Springs. Um, right. Just, and then lots of people that I forgot or probably don't know but who are doing amazing things right now. Um, there are a couple of pretty incredible ones though there that you've mentioned. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I mean, it was, it was great to have that um, just being a part of that and then obviously like seeing all these shows in berlin going to the old trezor and seeing uh, who's their uh, company flow and then you know it's just all this music just as an input and then by then you know coming back to i still resided in Aachen, going to uni and just doing parties in in clubs in in Aachen and doing my own parties and then we started also doing open air parties because uh, there was this hill where the three countries meet and um, I had friends that were living in Belgium at the time and we just got a sound system together and we started our party in Belgium and then the Belgian cops came it's a funny story actually <laughs> how specific that that area is um and we were just they were just like you can't do this here and we're like well how about we go 50 meters left to the German side and they were like well that's not our jurisdiction so <laughs> so we took the whole thing over to the German side and set up again and um, we're just partying in the fields and then the Dutch cops came actually on the German side they were like we got complaints from the Dutch side but it's again it's not our jurisdiction but we're just telling you we don't want to call our German colleagues so maybe turn it down a little bit and it was just you know like just funny parties like that where you just toy around with the cops in in that area (laughs) you just you can literally jump from country to country up there on that mountain it's it's funny did they find it amusing or frustrating uh both uh there were there were parties where um i remember i was djing and a cop would always uh, almost handcuff me because i was not 
turning down the music immediately and they were very aggressive. And then there were other times where, you know, because it's borderland, so they were just um, searching for, for drug smugglers or, or right. um, human trafficking. And then I was DJing and um, I turned down the music because I saw the cops approaching and they were just like, well, did we tell you to turn the music down? And I'm like, no, why do, why do you do it? Like, they would, they almost like wanted to mingle <laughs> with us. It's funny. So it, it, it went both ways in that. And obviously I think nowadays, I don't know if that's still possible. It's the same as in England with the, with the, um, with the, I mean, I, I, I don't want to compare what we had to what was happening with illegal race in England, but just similar, like the cops crushing down on it eventually. Sure. Uh, was there ever any sort of temptation to move to Berlin? Never, because what we had was good enough. I had my university that was half an hour away. We even then, in 99, started to have our own pirate radio station in Aachen called Loud FM, which then eventually turned into uh, a online radio uh, um, outfit in, in the town. Um, but yeah, even that, we had like a little you know little glimpse of that like you know um had this old um radio equipment actually from east germany from the old east german army forces someone brought that in right. and then we had a uh yeah we would be on terrestrial radio for a good summer like on the weekends three to f four hours every every weekend uh one of the supers in the house was involved and he would let us have have a go with the antenna on the roof and uh, it was a good experience so I had all this and um, I was by then also part of a, a, the biggest German record pool so I would get all these rockers 12 inches Stone's Row 12 inches uh, Groove Attack was uh, in Cologne was closed so uh, there was a lot of things happening with 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 records and then just um, establishing ourselves with different parties in in the town um, uh, in the early 2000s. And by that time, I was also working for a German record label called Put a Needle to the Records. Um, they were uh, publishing German rap albums. Quite successful at the time. The, the label then also set up a mail order, so I would work in the mail order. Um, and I think by by 2002, that, that whole first big German rap bubble, hip-hop bubble, where the majors put a massive amount of money into it, kind of burst, and then also the company folded. But I still stayed in, in Aachen um, and um, just did my, my, my studies and my parties. Hey guys, I hope you're enjoying Once a DJ. I wanted to create a product for the listeners to be able to support the show and for the guests as a token of gratitude for being on. So I've teamed up with SureShot Shop to create some Once a DJ 45 RPM adapter clamps. These are my weapon of choice as a 45 adapter as they add stability and grip to aid you in any setup. These are available for £25 each plus flat fee postage from oncedj.bigcartel.com and if you'd like to see the other models you can buy and also customise, check out SureShotShop.com. If you're a DJ who's been wanting to get into production but don't know where to start, or if you're looking to level up your beat making skills, look no further than howtomakemusic.co's online courses and personal coaching. Chris, the founder of How To Make Music, as well as knowing a load about music production, was once a DJ, and so his courses are ideal for the likes of us. From the Music Theory Essentials course to the incredibly thorough Ableton Turbo Start, 
there's a ton of good information to get you developing your music production skills. In addition to the video tutorials, there's a load of reference guides and they even offer personal coaching to get you where you want to be even quicker. And if you buy any course at howtomakemusic.co using the code ONCEADJ at checkout, you'll receive 10% off. So what are you waiting for? Visit howtomakemusic.co. I, su I suppose that timing comes with when when downloads were starting to emerge as well and, and physical music purchasing was slowing down, I guess. Um, that was a little later. I mean, we're still talking early 2000s. I remember just before that all hit, like one of my, as a DJ, one of my uh, vivid memories was, you know, when people talk about breaking a record. Um, yeah. And I uh, had that experience with... Um, uh, Missy Elliott's past that Dutch because I had the promo I got the promo sent on a Friday I was DJing that Friday and I went to the club and I was DJing with, with a friend who ran uh, the local uh, reggae sound system called Small Axe and I told him I have the new Missy Elliott and we have to like this has to be the record of the night so how do we do it and he was like alright let's let's announce it so we announced it I played it once did a rewind played it twice and then I, I think over the course of the evening did that five times and by the last time just the whole place went nuts and you know in the beginning they were like huh, oh, what is this and then it was just like okay boom and that's an experience I don't know if people still can have that with just how music is consumed nowadays or how it's accessible because at the time I was the only one with that song in the town <laughs> it was funny was it like um, did you listen to it the first time and just go this is going to be huge yeah yeah I was yeah. like this is I mean at the time uh you know especially for the clubs this was such a massive club record or I mean anything that Timberland did at that time was just amazing like music evolution in real time um but yeah, I mean, t moving on from that, like um, then at the end of my studies, I did a, uh, a year abroad, uh, which was in Prague. So I connected with the local hip hop scene in Prague and got really into uh, um, connecting there with local artists and also um, then was asked to perform at the hip hop camp, which is the biggest yeah. hip hop festival in Central Europe. Um, and started writing for um, um, Czech magazines, actually. I picked up a little bit of Czech, but I was obviously writing in English because my Czech wasn't that good. Um, but yeah, that was also really uh, instrumental, obviously, to, to connect and get another experience of DJing in, in another country. And, um, and then coming back by 2006, I finished my, my studies. I was... I was, I mean, I took my time with my studies. You can see like DJing mm. was always more important to me, but I, I was uh, eager to finish it. And it was, I mean, it was, a, um, it wasn't like an easygoing university. It was a, you know, big, big thing. And it took a lot of time as well next um, to the music to what, finish what that. What was the course that you did? Uh, it was called International Business, so it was uh, a lot of business psychology and, and logistics and, I mean, all anything business. But the, the whole study was in English. That was kind of my, my thing. Okay, at least I, I get, like, the business English out of it. And um, there was a lot of pressure on, on it as well. Like, I saw people, like, really having careers early on. Like, my peers, like, went to Adidas, worked there and that. I didn't have that. I was still, like, in my... Um, uh, in my small town and, and doing my thing. 
Um, at the same time, I had an alumni meeting um, years later uh, where it was funny because I was then happy with what I did and, you know, t turning my passion into uh, my, my job, essentially, and, and, and still doing what I loved. And these other guys were like, yeah, I've been like... Uh, I've been through the third consulting agency and like and it just wrecks me down and it's like mm. and, and, and like I've I, I think I came out well you know because in, in the beginning it was the it was the other way I felt like oh I'm not really advancing in what I wanted to do and still I'm still in a small town but then you know you take take this out of it and just be like okay this is actually you know you just need to be happy and find something that you really want in life and um so but then like obviously after after my studies it was like okay I really need to to do something here and I started working for a um kind of like a cultural agency in 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 Aachen that also ran this um online radio station and um working on some projects there but it was never something that I saw as a career and then by 2008 I was working for started working for other labels in Cologne again and by 2008 I was like all right I have to do something and I went full time DJing like I was like okay I'll make this work when you made that decision did you have enough regular gigs coming in to keep you afloat or were you at a certain percentage of what you would have needed? Because that's always a challenge with, with um, going full-time as a freelancer, not just with DJing, but say if you work as a designer or anything like that, yeah, it's like... Yeah. Well, so what we did was I teamed up with a long-time companion I DJed many years with uh, by the name of DJ Coma. Um, and he, um, him and I... We started doing these parties in a club. Um, um, he uh, established a thing called Miyoki, and we were then the Miyoki DJ team. I had my other party, which was called Mad Lifted, from this old Moax record, which says music for Mad Lifted Beat Junkies. Mm -hmm. Beat Junkies was already taken, so I took the Mad Lifted. Um, and I think the first full on uh, independent party that we did was uh, Halloween 2008, and it was more than a thousand people. And we had um, in in a town with three hundred thousand people, you know, so wow. it was massive. And we we then developed a setup where we always had six turntables on stage. So and we always had a guest in the middle. We would always invite an international guest or a national bigger DJ, and we were the the, the sidekicks literally. And that setup kind of became a thing, and it would also allow you as a DJ, you could just walk off stage, or you can come back and just go back into the set of the other person that's playing and uh, we would go nuts we would just like quick mixing and just scratching and playing all kinds of stuff it was like true open format from chubby checker to drum and bass to underground hip-hop to pop records uh, we didn't give a damn and um, by that time we would um, you know invite international DJs I mean we had Boogie Blind we had all the, the Lords of Fitness Rafik even like people like Miles Bonnie who brought his trumpet um, or uh, J-Row from the Alcoholics um, all the the um, uh, the Danish DJs very happy we had DJ Noise nice he, he, was, he was doing a club set not like a performance or anything he was playing an actual club set and to get him out to do a club set that took some some time because <laughs> he, he was already uh, at another level back then like yeah. fam more family and and, and um, music work behind the scenes um but yeah there was a good run we had 
from like 2008 to about 2013. Um, and that's when I left to uh, New York, actually, straight from Aachen to New York. <laughs> so how did that come about then? How was, how was that decision made? So Koma and I, DJ Koma and I, we went with our, uh, like he, him and his family and friends, we went on a tourist trip to New York, just like, okay, I want to experience this again. And at the same time, um, friends of mine were in town um, from London, actually, from a crew called Live and Proof. I don't know yeah. if you, yeah. Um, so uh, DJ Khalil from Live and Proof is a long, long time friend of mine. We actually linked up at uh, Hip Hop Camp in the Czech Republic. And he, they were in town and they introduced me to their New York friends. And all of a sudden it was like this, this thing where I meet people, um, I'm intrigued, um, and I just, I remember coming back and I called my dad and was like, I'm going to make the move. Like, this is it. I, I, I was kind of ready. I was, um, I had a, I had these parties in Ark and I had a weekly at a student party where I could also play my stuff and like play in a smaller room, not in the main room. But I was, you know, people were already asking me like, what, what, what are you still doing here? Like you're destined to, for other things. And I didn't want to go to Berlin. It was like either New York or London um, by that time, I already had played uh, Live and Proof a, a couple of times. I was playing in London uh, a few times uh, with Khalil, and um, so had a bit of you know, seen like just this in international vibe, and just having a, a city where people come from all aspects of life. And I wanted to be a part of that again, and that made the decision fairly easy to 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 make it in New York. Did you have a set amount of time that you thought I'm going to give it this amount of time if it doesn't work I'll go back or did you not even have that sort of doubt in your mind so in 2013 I was going back and forth because obviously I was I wasn't not just moving next week and especially not without a steady job or anything but I made it work I kind of hustled my way into the city um and um I gave it because I mean, I was going on a tourist visa. You know, you go on the Esther visa, so you have three mm. months. And in these three months, you have to accomplish something. Otherwise, you know, you have to go back. And um, through my music writing job, I was actually able to uh, get a visa, uh, a journalist visa, and then later on switch that to a green card. And, and, and um, because, I mean, I wasn't really wasn't really writing about music at that point that i mean that doesn't support you in new york anyway <laughs> so um pretty quickly went into djing again and uh, established myself here and i know a lot of people try that and it's really hard but you just it sounds so cliche and corny but you have to believe in yourself and obviously having a little bit of contacts having people in the beginning that helped me tremendously uh was was a big game changer for me but then also like i wasn't um you know over the years because for example we booked boogie blind so i could visit him in harlem he knew who i was and um um other people i um i think you were on that forum too like soul strut yes um so going back to the forum days like uh, i actually met people on that trip i i reached out and was like hey i'm gonna be in new york through soul strut and then met like dr lay here and he showed me around town and mm. it was just i had a good intro to the city and i think i was also by that time i was 35 i was old enough 
to not completely lose myself here and just be like, okay, I've got to treat this a little more seriously. And uh, I mean, don't get me wrong, I did my fair share of partying and nightlife and um, mm. just just networking and meeting people. But yeah, it was um, slowly built myself up here again, like slowly build up a record collection here again. Um, started doing bar gigs, uh, started doing club gigs. Um, and then eventually a year later or so was like DJing with Q-Tip and had all these, like all of a sudden this, these things were rolling in, uh, record store here started to, uh, they, they asked me if I wanted to start working for them. And so all these things came into place again. It was always, I always believed in myself to, to be able to do that. Um, but obviously it was hard and there were days where I was like, oh, I might have to go back. I don't know how I'm going to pay rent next month, mm. but I, I was, I had this core, belief um in myself and my abilities and um yeah it worked out um do you think anything from your degree helped with just how you how you approach things um not necessarily maybe what really helped was okay i am i know i'm able to converse i'm, I'm i know how to use the english language mm. and i can make myself uh, be understood and um, I think the language really helped and I was quick and I was like, okay, I, I get the humor. I can, I can be funny. And it's always something that interests me, like puns. And like they, they, I really like the English language. I like languages a lot. So um, that helped. And then obviously having this, this background of hip hop definitely helped. And um, uh, which in turn was funny because I then once you're here, I was always in. The, I call myself an ambassador of the culture in Europe, and you know, writing about music, uh, hip hop music, interviewing artists, making sure that what I thought rap is presented in the right way or whatever that was. I mean, um, it's, it's I, I see it a bit more relaxed now. But then coming here, and it's like they don't really need me here as a white guy from Germany <laughs> representing hip hop. So I got also got into other things again and started opening up to other forms of music like funk, soul, uh, disco, just uh, house um, and, and establishing that for myself. Yeah. I think from what I've, from what I've heard of your mixes as well, it's, it, it, it's all, I think some people have a really good sense of just like the right side of house that's kind of really accessible but isn't too mainstream. That was always my my sweet spot in a sense. I never had a problem with pop music. I always loved the deepest underground. So my spectrum is is really wide. I mean, I've DJed for jazz bands. I've played in um, electronic uh, jam sessions where where it was like really abstract, where people would do scat sounds and like some weird <laughs> dancing would happen you know so just trying out different things and being not being shy of of uh taking your craft into like out of your comfort zone really helped me to to um also find what i'm comfortable at and obviously when you when you go full time you know i mean i did weddings i did 
things that might not have been this cool or where even like the, the guys in Arkham back then I remember they were like looking down on me like all the, the the cats from the scene they didn't understand that I was DJing the student party and like this is not cool and I'm like I have to pay rent and this is what yeah. I do so there's only so much you can do with DJing in this small area um, so I was doing all of it yeah um, so and I'm I, I encourage everyone to you know if 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 you really want to do this and you love it, then don't be shy to to also step out of your comfort zone and do things that might seem strange a bit or might seem like, ah, oh, this is not the right fit for me. You never know what comes out of it. Yeah, I mean, I, I had a phase of doing, did quite a few weddings. And if you'd have said to me at a certain point, yeah, you're going to start doing weddings, I'd have probably thought, no, I'm not. Why would I do that? And then when you do them and you can just let go a little bit, they can be really good fun and really satisfying. And the times when you can get the 70-year-olds dancing to Tribe Called Quest and things like that, it's it, there's a lot of fun in that because you're kind of, you're playing their game, but you're winning a little bit because you, 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 you kind of help it to be a little bit on your terms, which is quite good fun. Yeah, and, and it's you, you have to be a certain type of person i guess there's it's not for everyone mm. um if you're more of an artist driven dj then you want to do yourself and want to have people actually come to see you then that's what you need to strive for i'm always kind of in the middle of that so it makes it more difficult um to present yourself or establish yourself but i, I want to do this all my life in some sort of form so um uh, your podcast also has opened up myself to to have other thoughts or like see it a little less stressed uh, it, it's funny because i was talking to a friend of mine who just got out of djing a little bit and he's like yeah i started my own company and i'm like yeah but you know and he was kind of sad a little bit that he got out of the dj game for it and i'm like well but you can always come back like yeah. there's no the, i think we're at a point in our lives in our society where um these clear driven careers are not happening in, anymore anyway or less and less or if you want you can have it but it's also no there's no shame in coming back to djing after 10 years you just it's like if you're really good at it and you love it you're gonna get back into it it's like riding a bike you need some practice again yes but uh if you have it and you you still have to have this bug like wh why not you know yeah like I, I like that i spent some time away from djing because in the time i spent away from djing I kind of developed a career and kind of used a lot from DJing, from the thing of doing your own website, doing your own graphics and album covers and, and again, bits of nowhere near as much as you, but little bits of writing and kind of use these skills to, and, and experiences to, to change my career path. And then with the career path kind of sorted, coming back to DJing, I've come back to it on my own terms in a very different way and cause, because with the DJing before I stopped I got pulled into I'd go out with a Serato crate and play this 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 and this and I got very samey with what I was doing and now I'm back at it I, I, I do battle with whether I should get a controller and start doing doing some Serato stuff but then I'm like if I do that it just it opens up a lot of complications and I think having just records, having limitations, it's fine, I don't DJ that much. And if I can just stick to that, I'm still, you know, I'm still gonna get enough gigs to keep me going. 
Yeah, then and, and you need obviously you need um, um, a structure or, or uh, something where the stuff that you want to play you actually able to play. I mean, yeah. I'm I'm very uh, lucky and and happy that I have residencies now here in New York where um, I can do what I want and people book me for that and. Um, it's not like the the whole requesting, for example, is is not really a, a big thing in my world anymore. It's mm -hmm. more like people coming up and being like, "Hey, that was really like that was something, and I appreciate you playing this stuff that I didn't know." It's also the audience. You have to find this type of audience. And yeah. um, um, that being said, you know, um, for anyone that starts, I think you you were just mentioning a controller. Like I had a someone asking me the other day like yeah i want to get into djing and i just bought this controller i'm like fine like that's cool like i i i liked as you said i like the limitations of having only vinyl or having only this but i i think you should be open to anything and just whatever fits i mean right now for example i do a lot of video content as well that's purely based on vinyl hmm. um just vinyl mixes and quick mixes and just 45s and just playing with it uh, people seem to like it and it's um, something where the limitation actually helps me to focus more and get get yeah. get other stuff done at the same time I was talking to a friend and he's like why you know don't limit yourself maybe add a add a CDJ next time why not and see how, where where this can go you know so it's um, wherever you want to take it and you just have to it's so cliche, but you have to just be yourself and play with it and, and uh, you know, take whatever comes out of it and, and be yourself. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, is there anything that we've not touched on? I mean, I know you've done some, um, you do some musical curation as well, some sort of um, corporate work, haven't you, for like Adidas and some others? Yeah, I mean, it's it's. I've I've done that. Um, unfortunately, that kind of took a hit with the whole pandemic thing because all these locations kind of had to close down. And um, but I did, uh, for example, I did um, uh, uh, some music supervision work, music direction work for a company called Spin here in New York. They're a ping pong social club. Um, they have locations all over the U.S. and I was also DJing their, all their grand openings whenever they had an opening in Seattle oh, nice. or in, in Philadelphia. Actually, dream come true. They when we did the thing in Philly, um, um, the, uh, uh, the the guy that booked me, like I worked with uh, Mathieu, um, he he pulled me to the side and he was like, "All right, so we have an MC coming right now." And I'm like, he didn't tell me before. Like, I was like, okay. And then someone showed up and was like, here's the USB, here are the instruments. I'm like, well, we're in Philly. Who is it? And he's like, I'll, I'll let you know in a second. It was Schoolie D. Oh, wow. So so I actually uh, DJed for Schoolie D. And uh, like, it was all impromptu. I just pulled pulled the instrumentals he let me know what and we actually had a good flow going and hung out later on it was like a, a hip-hop dream come true nice yeah like dj but yeah the whole curation thing um it's ironic it, i did a lot more before the pandemic uh but then during the pandemic picked up the djing again the craft and did uh, a lot of videos and twitch streams and, and stuff like that and that kind of got me back into more of, uh djing again which I'm not mad at. You know, it's ebbs and flows. And, um, but this is, as, as I said, this is really something I'm, I've, I've been doing my whole life almost, like um, since I was a young kid. And 
So um, in, in one shape or form, it's always going to be in my life. Yeah, and, and it looks like you say, you know, you've, you've managed to do that thing. And, and I think it's really interesting what you mentioned about kind of artist-driven DJs versus, I don't know what you'd call it, like sort of non-artist-driven. I think that is a really, um, a really interesting way to kind of separate the two. Because it, it's something where you can go down. It's like Santero said about with the having having the kind of bar work, and then having like the Ministry of Sound residency and having to choose one path to go down. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Sometimes it's hard, but at the same time, you know, they, you can come back to anything you want if you really pursue it and if if it fulfills you and if you make it work, it's possible for anyone. Um, there's always going to be obstacles and it's going to be harder at a certain point than at other points in life. But um, if you really want it, you can make it work. I was just talking to my friend, DJ Coma, and he's like, man, I'm really, he's doing more graphic work these days. But he's mm. like, at the end of the year, I'm planning to go back into production and DJing more. And it, like, you know, there's always ways. And um, yeah, I think, you know, for me right now, I'm, I'm really happy with where I'm at right now, but there's still... Uh, um, as Breakbeat Lou said, you know, you're always a student, so you, yeah. it never stops. I think as well, it's it's something that's really good. I can't remember if it was on here. I was talking to someone and saying about going to like um, a mindfulness retreat that was all about death and impermanence, and it really made me think about how we can get caught up in being a certain thing, and we can let that definition of us guide where we end up and, and we don't always step away and think do I want to be doing this thing all the time and and it's it's fine to understand that you can step away from doing a certain thing to focus on another thing and that other thing isn't going anywhere and if you want to come back to it you might find that you can get back to where you were quicker than it took you to get there the first time yep yep exactly that um, I think that's been a, a, a really good bit of insight and, um, yeah, loads to take in there. Um, is there any other sort of key piece of advice that you want to give our listeners about if they were taking up DJing or just considering on their journey as a DJ? Like like I mentioned before, um, um, you have to start somewhere. And a lot of people ask me that, especially now through my videos, I get like lots of like, hey, I want to DJ, and what can I do? And you just start somewhere and then just start your journey. The starting is is just probably the most important thing. And you, it's never going to be right. You know, you're never going to have that ideal equipment. You're never going to have that ideal situation. I started with a tape deck and a belt-driven turntable to, to make a mix. Um, today, you can easily start with a controller. And then in a month, you can be... Once you separate your left and your right brain, you don't even have to do that no, anymore. You can just use the sync button, but it's still <laughs> you can still rock a party with that. I'm not against the sync button. That's another discussion. Yeah. But um, uh, if if you really want to pursue it, there's so many ways. the the um, The cost of starting has uh, dropped considerably considerably in the last decades, I'd say. So um, that's my advice. Just start somewhere with whatever you can find, whatever you feel comfortable with, and practice, practice, practice. It's that that doesn't go away. I mean even the 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 the, the most successful one DJs in, in this uh, in their fields they they still 
practice a lot and it that never goes away and that's part of of it that's yeah. essentially my advice like like start somewhere and then practice and find your journey um and obviously also know what you don't want to do like if you if you really feel really uncomfortable sometimes it's good to get out of your comfort zone but if it like if it if it wears on you emotionally and physically like <laughs> you sh maybe should go in another direction with it yeah and the final question then is is there anyone in, in particular that you'd like to hear on this podcast talking about their journey I mean, I mentioned him a couple of times already in, in this, but I really think that Boogie Blind would be someone that, because he kind of, um, he comes from that world and is just such an incredible human being, like a Harlem Renaissance man and um, still doing his thing. And obviously he would have a lot to say. Um, don't know if he, he's, he would be able to do it, but maybe you can get him on here. That, that'll be sweet. I'll certainly give it a try. And just where can anyone find you online um, who isn't following you already? Um, probably the best is still Instagram, uh, Sticky Doja, Sticky D-O-J-A-H with an H in the end. Uh, you can find me there. And um, also on Bandcamp. Um, I think everything is just Sticky Doja. Um, so yeah, easy to find. Brilliant. Thanks ever so much for your time today. Thanks, Adam. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Once a DJ podcast. If you've got any questions or feedback or any suggestions for guests, please just get in touch with us at onceadjpodcast at gmail.com or on Instagram at onceadjpodcast. Take care and we'll speak to you soon. Oh, that was nice.